0: The information in this podcast is current on the day of recording. It is general advice only and does not take your personal situation into account. It may not be suitable for you. Participants in this podcast may also own the securities discussed. For more information, head over to investsmart.com.au.
1: Welcome to Skin in the Game. I'm your host, Portfolio Manager, Nathan Bell. And as always with me is our Small Cap Fund Manager, Alex Hughes. Welcome, Alex. Hi, Nath. Hi, everyone. Now, we've been making a bit of a gag for a little while about Skin in the Game in that it's Investmart's second best podcast after uh, some other uh, production management within the company said an alternative podcast within the business was in actual fact the best thing uh, that Investmart had ever done. Not mentioning names. (laughs) Uh, but recently we've been given some numbers, um, we do follow them fairly closely but uh, the numbers following our podcast recently have kicked up quite a bit and we've now got about a thousand people following so the numbers are v- pretty clear that we are actually the best podcast and investment. Now I just wanted to say a quick couple of thank yous uh, to honour that situation which first of all is to you Alex because I think the detail and expert analysis you're providing on small caps is a big reason for that. Oh, thanks, Nath. And, you. and the second thing is I just want to thank everyone who's listening, who's telling other people, who are sending in questions, who are providing feedback and who are investors in our funds. And obviously we, um, we want you to keep supporting us, but the best way you can support us is by sharing our uh, monthly and, and probably more importantly our quarterly uh, updates from the funds because we do want to grow our business over time and we would like to hire more analysts over time as well to make sure great opportunities aren't slipping through the cracks. Alex, is there anything else
0: you'd like to mention? Um, also, ratings on things like iTunes are, is also helpful for sharing what we're doing here on the podcast. So, yeah, if you can give us a rating or a review, we'd really appreciate it. All right, so you can see that I'm uh, technically inept because I never would have thought of that.
1: Now, I just want you to bear with me because I just want to provide a little bit of context uh, or pretext for the first question we've got today. So you just uh, got a few paragraphs. Uh, the first one is a quote from a guy called Jim Grant, who long-time Intelligent Investor followers will be well familiar with. But this guy, in my view, is the best writer about all things financial. And he has a quote, and he's, he's had this saying for a long time, but it's extremely important. He says, science, though, is one thing, finance another. In science, progress is cumulative. We stand on the shoulders of giants. In finance, progress is cyclical. We keep stepping on the same rake. Now, Jim Grant was just recently, uh, and I've stumbled upon this quite by accident, because I was just looking for that quote, and he's actually been uh, given an award uh, about his coverage of of the Fed and a few other bits and pieces, and he prepared a speech, and the speech is is not too long, and it's well worth reading it all, but he provided uh, three paragraphs on how he would fix the Federal Reserve, and I think it equally applies to Australia and and basically the Western world in terms of how central banks are managing the economies at the moment. And obviously you'll be able to tell he does this with firmly tongue in cheek, but he's very serious about um, actually the changes. And he says, how he would fix the Fed is first, an overhaul of the PhD standard for starters. The 700 doctors of economics on the Fed's payroll seem not to understand the limitations of economic modelling or the relevance of the financial past. Send them to NASA, which is where they wanted to work in the first place. Replace them with a half-dozen historians, a couple of philosophers and a physician. The historians would study the recurring patterns of economic and financial affairs, the philosophers would contemplate the true nature of money and the physician would repeat at intervals, first, do no harm. As to interest rates, the new and enlightened Federal Reserve would adopt the policy endorsed long ago by the central banker who pleaded, don't give me a low rate, give me a true rate and then I shall know how to keep my house in order. And lastly, he says, the Fed would cast this regime change in language calculated to appeal to the environmentally conscious younger generation. What we need, the new brooms at the central bank would say, are rates discovered in the market, not imposed from on high. In other words, green interest rates, unprocessed, unpasteurised, unfluoridated interest rates, cage-free, cruelty-free, hormone-free, antibiotic-free, gluten-free, grass-fed, heart-healthy, probiotic, non-GMO, non-dairy, free-range, all-natural, sustainable, organic, farm-to-table interest rates. (laughs) And so the reason I point this out is because the first question is, is APRA's move to reduce the home loan buffer rate significant for the banks? And I just think it's absolutely absurd that barely, I think it was barely two months ago, the regulators came out after the Hain inquiry and talked about not changing the 2.5% buffer. So this is the buffer that uh, when you submit your home application, the bank looks at it, first of all, it actually looks at your expenses and then it applies as basically a catch-all, a 2.5% higher interest rate on your repayments and works out whether you could afford those higher rates and that, for there's the buffer uh, against you being able to repay your loan. And now what APRA said just uh, barely a couple of days ago is that now they're going to reduce that 2.5% buffer to 2%, but they're going to allow the banks themselves to work it out. Um, now, I just found this unbelievable, um, partly because the way that the banks look at home expenses at the moment was already one of the key things that came out of the Hain inquiry, and they were drastically, drastically underestimating the average average expense uh, in a home. And so that's one thing that needed to be fixed, and I get the impression that has at least partly been fixed. But then the catch-all, which is this interest rate buffer, uh, is supposed to allow for you know, not just higher interest rates, but it's also if people's expenses are higher or if people lose their job. It's really a catch-all for just being able to repay your mortgage when you're under some sort of stress. And I wouldn't have said a 2 or 2.5% interest rate buffer on what are very low interest rates already uh, was much of a buffer anyway. And if people can't really afford that, then I don't see why we should be giving them a home loan at this stage of the cycle, when Australia's mortgage debt levels are already the second highest in the world and everything's so fragile. So is this significant for the banks? My short answer is, I think it's taken away the tail risk in the property market in Australia at the moment. But in terms of, uh, but what it really needs to be really important for the banks and to spur on any increase in property prices and lending is for investors to come back to the market And I just don't think they're going to come back in a big way because the prices are already expensive. So I don't think this is a huge deal for the earnings of the banks. I still think the fundamental factors in terms of profit margins and credit growth are still headwinds. And I don't think they're particularly cheap. Uh, It's interesting that Commonwealth Bank's had a really nice response out of it. And that's the most expensive uh, bank in Australia on a price to book ratio. But it deserves that because it is the biggest and the best bank. And if you ever go through a downturn, you'll understand why you want to own the biggest and the best bank. Uh, But that's a bit of a rant from me.
0: (laughs) Alex, have you got any comments? Yeah, we were looking at some numbers earlier this morning. And and to me, I think it shows that um, APRA is getting concerned about where the rate of lending is and, and what the second order effects of that mean for the economy and for the housing market. Um, in terms of how this change will impact things, I, I tend to agree. When you look at the new serviceability um, buffer and 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 how that applies to the rate of more rate of new mortgages, I, I don't think it, it is a huge supportive factor because. Um, the average interest rate on mortgages um, for owner occupiers is, is now about 4.25%. So when you add the 2.5% buffer on top of that, you're getting up towards um, what 6.75%. So it's slightly less than um, the 7% hurdle which was previously in place and that's for the average borrower. So you know, for the higher quality credits out there that might be supportive these changes, um, but for you know the vast majority of people, it's it's only going to be a slight improvement in terms of them getting a loan, and, and in investors who have higher interest rate um, interest rates baked, in, um, well that that won't help them either. So I think for the marginal buyer, you got you got to ask you know how is this going to affect the marginal buyer? I think it, it it does ease things a little bit, but it, it's it's not a, a significant change. So I think it might stem the the rate of decline in housing prices somewhat, but I'm still expecting soft conditions here and.
1: So I thought this was quite a nice segue just to have – actually, before we do that, uh, John Hempton, who's a a guy who I've talked about before, who I think is – well, he's world renowned for being one of the best short sellers in the market, but he's an excellent investor. He's a background in platinum asset management. He has his own firm at Bronte Capital. But he recently, uh, I think it was just last week or was it this week, did a podcast uh, on the Jolly jolly swagmen. Is that right, Alex? That's the one. And – Basically they'll just ask him about uh, what uh, some research he did, which was on 60 Minutes, I think probably 18 months ago now, he did with John Tepper. He basically posed uh, as a gay couple and they were out in the north and northwest of Sydney and trying to find out how bad and lapsed the lending standards were. And what he found that was the further away you went from the Sydney CBD, the worse it got, but it was really the outer rings that were absolutely bad. And the host of the podcast was really trying to push um, John to say, what are your expectations for property prices around um, the more popular areas of Melbourne and Sydney, so close to the CBD, close to the beaches, and he really wouldn't be, uh, he didn't change his tune. And basically, uh, in a nutshell, what he expects from here is that within the next two or three years, and bearing in mind John and myself and Alex know as much about the foolhardiness of predicting future economic conditions. But basically his summation was that in two or three years we'll probably have some sort of garden variety recession. We're not going to have uh, an Ireland or Spain complete collapse. And the main reason he said that was because we've got this huge buffer in the currency and he believes if we were to go into let's say the 40s under really you know bad conditions for the property market, then all of a sudden you would find the big iron ore companies, um, travel companies, because Australia would become one of the cheapest places in the world to have a great beach holiday, would be absolutely flying. So you'd actually have these nice buffers in the Australian economy. Uh, and this is really my view as well. I, I, there's nothing I would love more than to see property prices in my area fall 20 or 25%. Uh, but I just find in these really popular suburbs, I just, I just think if we're sitting here thinking we're going to get a GFC, I think it's extremely unlikely and therefore I don't think you want to invest on that basis.
0: Yeah, I I tend to agree with the view in in terms of the framework and how we unpack the different parts of, of Sydney and Melbourne. I mean for, I live, I live in Manly which is a nice place to live and I think there'll be a continual flow of people that want to live in Manly. Um, but in terms of what the property prices are there, I think that's really dependent on how much money people can borrow and that's dependent on the bank's willingness to lend and I think that's come down so you'll, you'll see some reduction there but that's really just a short term issue um, and, and that will work through. Um, Western Sydney is obviously very different and you know I agree that you'll see higher falls out there because Obviously supply is not capped, you know, grass to the Blue Mountains was the comment from John Hempton. So you can build um, houses, you know, f- far into the future and, and that just adds to the supply and, um, and you know, that doesn't cons- um, constrain prices. Um, but yeah, interesting points about the how the different parts of the economy, economy will be affected and, and that really aligns with how we've been thinking for a long time. So you and I both have very minimal exposure to the Australian economy. You know, we've been avoiding things like retailers and, and other businesses that would be really hurt by that. Um, the, the, the comments about the currency are also interesting. You know, we've got big offshore earnings exposures already. Um, I was having a look at a business, a WA focused business this morning called Euros. Um, so this, was, this is a business that's heavily exposed to the resources sector. Um, they do things like capital raisings um, over in WA and, and, and that, their business has historically flown when, when commodities have done well. Um, so a business like that would do really well if the Australian dollar fell um, and resources got a little kick there. So um, no matter how a, an economy evolves, you can always find interesting pockets to invest in. So that's what we're focusing on. I
1: think the really important general lesson from that discussion is you've got to have second level thinking. You can't just look at, OK, recession, prices, property prices down and then just assume everything is going to be bad. You've really got to think through that. And what are the repercussions in other markets? Because I think that's what drives your thinking and gives you a plan of how you're going to act because under a recessionary situation where share prices are falling, you're going to lean on thoughts you've already had, most likely it's very hard when you're under pressure for most people I think to think uh, very evenly mm. and, and then just kind of uh, sort of fall towards the stocks they already know well. Um, you know, when share prices are falling, it's very hard to go and do new research. and uh, There's just so much going on. So I just think if you're thinking about all these things and putting a portfolio together, particularly for retirees who can't afford big losses from the stock market uh, because they're not going to be working again, they can't make up those shortfalls, it's really important to think about these full cycles, if you like, how you're going to act, have a plan and, and even write it down because when the pressure comes... Um, you'd be very happy you you did and you really want to follow the decisions you made while you're nice and sober uh, rather than panicking. Just quickly, I just thought it was worth going through the winners and losers from uh, the Liberals getting up, which was uh, widely unexpected from most people. But we've talked about the banks. I think the banks were the big winners. Uh, A little company I own in our growth fund uh, class, uh, which sells software to self-managed super funds, uh, they got a little uh, pat on the back and share price went up a little bit because now there's less fear about uh, the Liberals mucking around with self-managed super funds and and franking credits in particular. Uh, the health insurers were big responders. I only own them in our ethical portfolio, which is about to be launched. So they're actually looking fairly expensive now after going up between around uh, 10 12%. Uh, Ramsey Healthcare was another one where... Uh, the labor's policy on basically minimizing uh, cost increases from the health insurers to two percent was going to uh, put more pressure on the bank's profitability uh, sorry on the private hospital profits um, and the other one was the I noticed the mortgage brokers yeah. uh, mortgage shorts I think it's up about 20 percent. Uh, and there were some some funny comments from various people saying that uh, the brokers will back up to their old tricks and just giving anyone a loan will come along now. Um, Just wondering, Alex, from your point of view, is there any other big losers or winners that came out of Uh, The Liberals win.
0: Uh, The one that springs to mind for me is Hello World. So this is a competitive flight centre. I was reading some research earlier today about how they have some government work where they provide travel services for the government, Um, and investors were concerned about that piece of work under uh, a Labour government. Um, So now that Liberal has has won the election. Um, that work is is seen to be more certain, and, and so perhaps you'll see a repricing there. Um, but I mean, the, these these um, these situations where um, elections um, dictate um, certain outcomes, I, I think that's that's factored in very quickly. You know, we we saw the banks go up eight percent on the first day. So I don't think there's any sort of enduring benefit from a lot of this stuff. You know, it gets price fairly quickly and then um, it's just back to business as usual. I was going to say in six
1: months we'll have forgotten all this and it'll we'll be back to the fundamentals of the individual businesses. Yeah, absolutely. So th- another question from Andrew, hi guys, I'm wondering whether you have an opinion on uh, AZV, Azure Healthcare.
0: Yeah, um, I, I've followed this business for a number of years. It's, there's a few interesting things about it and so I've kept a loose eye on it. I check in every sort of three months or so just to see the progress there. Um, and there, there are a few interesting things. So what this business does is nurse call systems. So those are the devices that nurses have on their hips and that allows them to communicate and, and be alerted when a, a patient needs any care and that type of thing. Um, and this business has an international revenue profile so it's been around for quite a while, a few decades. Um, it's got a decent US business in Asia and also here in Australia. Um, the interesting part though is that they have been tran- transitioning to Um, providing software as well instead of just providing the hardware and in doing so they're developing this recurring more stable um, software stream and that's about 12% of revenue now. Um, So I've been keeping an eye on it for that factor because potentially it'll move from a sort of lumpy hardware business to a consistent recurring software business. Um, The thing that keeps me away from it though is that there are some big competitors out there, some some multi-billion dollar firms and Azure is a small player in this market Um, And obviously investing in the software and hardware is really important. I think they'll be at a disadvantage there. Um, And another factor that concerns me is I worry that nurse call systems, they're currently a product, but I worry that they'll turn into just a feature for sort of the centralised software systems that hospitals use. So instead of it being a standalone, it might just be something provided by one of the big software providers that you know provides the high-level software to hospitals, and they'll get just get squeezed out of the picture. So um, that's just a hunch of mine. I'm not entirely sure about that, but that's something I've I've been thinking about. Um, so for me, this is, it's an interesting little story. I'm not close enough to it or confident enough in it to buy the stock, but um, something I'm just keeping an eye on.
1: Hi guys, uh, Nathan, first of all, any comment on the recent downgrade from Reliance Worldwide Corporation? I'm a holder for now, but contemplating uh, selling the stock and looking for a better better opportunity, thanks Toe. So uh, Reliance Worldwide uh, own this in the growth fund, it uh, does plumbing. So this is back of, of the wall plumbing and what it really does is save plumbers a lot of time in the old days when a pipe broke, you'd essentially have to saw it off and then solder it back together. And what they do is they have brass fittings in the US and plastic fittings elsewhere in Australia and and Europe. Um, The main difference is uh, just due to water pressure. And their fittings just essentially snap shut together. Uh, SharkBite is is the main brand. And the real upside in this business over the next decade is that only around 10% of uh, the plumbing markets are using these more modern devices so over time as older houses with the older plumbing tend to break and you've got uh, younger plumbers who are less uh, educated in the old ways or we're using these faster more modern products and there's a potentially huge growth to come over the next 10 years although it's um, relatively slow in the sense that uh, plumbers have to change their ways and uh, and it's not like you know half of houses have to replace their plumbing every year. So that was the bull case and recently, uh, actually it was probably a few months ago, it warned that if there wasn't a very cold snap in the middle of America where its main business is, which would then lead to freezing pipes and snapping, uh, then they would have a small profit downgrade and, and that's what eventually came through. The actual downgrade itself, in terms of the numbers, was actually fairly small. It was only like a six or seven percent profit downgrade. So, it was, and because everyone had been forewarned, it was quite surprising that the share price fell around 20, or it might have been a bit more than 20 percent over a couple of days. But I think what was most ominous in the report was there was this uh, almost last comment after about six pages of detail, with a lot of one-offs as well of supposed one-offs was that they said we basically need to continue investing otherwise the maturity of our products will be overwhelmed by new competition. And I think that was quite scary to read because these were supposed to be the guys with the new technology. These are the guys with the better mousetrap. And you're thinking, well, these guys, as long as they continue to invest in their products, uh, then they'll be fine for the next five or ten years. It was a really good story. And now the premiums really come out of the share price. Uh, and it's probably down around 20% from what I originally paid for it. Um, I, th- I think almost because of that line, because I just think it's pretty deferred to people.
0: Yeah, because they have 80% share of the fit to connect market, do they not? That's so. right.
1: They're absolutely dominant. Yeah. And um, so I haven't sold any. It's it's a fairly small position in the portfolio. It's only around 3% of the uh, portfolio. There's actually uh, one person I want to speak to before I take any action uh, the one thing I'd really like to see from this company is actually better uh, free cash flow coming out because it's all well and good to pay what looks like a cheap enterprise value to operating profit valuation, but you want to see lots of free cash flow coming out of the business. Uh, that said, it's made uh, a big acquisition recently, which is the John Guest business in the UK, and it said basically all, all that was on track, so I think that's what it probably would have scared me a bit more. Uh, but it just does, sh- and I think this is a really good warning, we talk about all these technology stocks, And all their share prices recently uh, have just shot to the moon. No one's really thinking that these businesses will face more competition over time. And the barriers to entry in the software market are just getting lower over time as well as technology increases. Mm. So I just think for anyone who's paying 50 or 60 times earnings for software stocks, just be very careful that those competitive advantages and switching costs are very real. But bringing it back to Reliance Worldwide, I haven't done anything yet. Um, the actual profit downgrade itself was actually not too bad, and there's a lot of one-offs in there that should improve over the next year or two, and because I bought this for the next five to 10 years, that view hasn't changed, uh, but obviously I'm up on my tippy-toes at the moment um, yeah. just to see what the next announcement looks like.
0: It would be great to see some insider buying there given the, the ex-founder um, and chairman sold out. Um, well, last year and this year so you know it'd be good to see that management believe in the story believe in the business and and, and are attracted to the valuation there's some interesting uh tweets
1: uh, one guy in particular said it was so obvious it had a high share price the shorts were reasonably large made a big acquisition which was a hail mary and the founders just recently sold out and i wrote about this in the the monthly update and i just normally when there's the founder sells out i do get very worried uh, because i tend to think even at at worst usually it means the business isn't going to grow very quickly from then on because the founder can find better places to put their money um yet alone there being something really really bad but this didn't seem to have those issues it seemed to have plenty of growth in the future but the founders did sell out but they'd actually been selling out for quite a while so and I think it was fairly obvious they were going to sell out at some point, so I wasn't worried about that either. Uh, but we haven't seen any insider buying elsewhere from the what is effectively a corporate CEO these days. And the second part uh, of that question was, uh, Dicker Data has been trading sideways for the whole of 2018. And since the beginning of the year and after the inclusion in your portfolio, this is directed to you, Alex, the share price suddenly shot up to all time high. Any comment on the potential upside from here or is it too late to get in now? Um,
0: Obviously we can only provide general advice. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, yeah, I mean the business is performing really well at the moment. So in, they recently updated um, their quarterly figures for the FY19 year and revenue's up strongly, profit's up about 46% and I, I think they're on track to upgrade their guidance for the full year if they continue as they are. And management have been buying heavily and there was actually some buying today. Um, and, and so that's further encouragement that things are going well. Um so the business is doing really well, I'm not entirely sure what's going on, I, I have a hunch that something's changed in the industry that is really driving things forward, maybe a competitor has dropped the ball and Dicker is capitalising on that or something that we're not actually aware of yet but the business is, is really executing. Um, in terms of the valuation, like it, it's gone up a lot, um, You know, I, I didn't expect it to go up 100% in the space of a few months. Um, so that really changes the prospective returns from here. So if I didn't own it, I would be less interested in buying it now, um, simply because it's gone up so much and there's less margin of safety. Um, longer term I think the business is um, obviously has great alignment from, from the founders and the management team. Um, it's executed really well in the past and there's no reason to believe that they can't continue doing that. Um, but I would be tapering my return expectations um, just based on the higher, higher starting price. Um, so yeah, happy to hold it, um, but um, in terms of adding more at this point, um, I'm holding off. It's one of the good things about buying well-run businesses. The surprises tend to be
1: good ones. Hi guys, not sure if you've ever discussed NextDC on the show, although I do note it's been recommended by Gaurav uh, at the Intelligent Investor subscription business in the past. Would love to hear both of your thoughts on NextDC as I've recently bought a parcel for my SMSF. Regards, Patrick.
0: Yeah, NextDC, um, this... I. I often get confused because people, you see the media talking about this stock and they, they talk about it like it's a, a tech company and I think that's the wrong mental framework to bring to the business. It, you should think about it like a, a REIT essentially. You know, This business has a, a finite amount of capacity um, and then it seeks to get tenants for that capacity in terms of its data and, and it charges a price per megawatt for that. So the variables for their revenue is occupancy and then obviously the unit pricing there. Um, And so once they, they're fully occupied, then there's no room to growth outside of um, adding to the unit pricing or building an entire new centre. So it's not like it's scalable like a software business. So so that, that I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, but in saying that, what this business has going for it is the fact that there's tremendous demand for data at the moment. You know we're all using our phones on the commute home and we're sending cat photos to each other and whatnot and so that's driving this huge tailwind for the business and supply is brought online in stages and it's there's a lag to it so it's slow to come online and and that allows businesses like NextDC to charge a high price per megawatt. Um, so that allows great economics. Um, I think the real question longer term about the future economics for this business is what will the supply demand balance look like? Um, there is a risk and if you look at other in- industries with these characteristics, there's a risk that lots of supply comes online all at once. And if you look at all the players out there like NextDC and Macquarie Telecom and a number of the other ones—they're all building tremendous amounts of capacity. So the risk is that that all comes online at the same time, um, uh, floods the market, and the price per megawatt falls. Now, in saying that, the industry has been really good at managing the introduction of new supply. What they tend to do is they build um, essentially the, the the shell for the structure, um, but then slowly add you know the mechanical and electrical componentry as they as they have demand. So the, it's not like all of the supply comes on line at once. Um, so I think they can. that helps to sort of manage, manage that balance and ensure that they earn high returns. Um, so that, that, those are my first comments. I'll let you have a crack now. <laughs> so I'm going to
1: reserve my comments because we're having a look at this sector at the moment. But one thing I want to say is investing is part art and part science and you've talked about the science there but part of the art of investing is looking for subtle cues about management and the business. And I know you've seen some not-so-subtle cues about management.
0: <laughs> yeah, Instagram has provided some good insights. So there was a, a piece in the AFR a while back about the, uh, the CEO, Craig Scroggie, and his Instagram account and how he lives a lavish li- lifestyle and drives Ferraris and that type of thing. And, you know, that's just insight into his world and, and potentially that may flow into how the business is run. Um, if you do look at the two comparables on the ASX, so you've got NextDC and then you've got Macquarie Telecom. Um, Macquarie Telecom has two parts to its business. One is a, a telecom business and the other is hosting, similar to NextDC. Macquarie, Macquarie Telecom hasn't issued any shares and it's, it's grown its capacity organically where NextDC has issued lots of debt and equity over time to grow. Um, so... I I tend to to go for businesses with owner-managers, Macquarie Telecom has a a 60% owner-manager in place, um, whereas NextDC, there's question marks around the management there, so, yeah. So that's the end of the questions, but uh, a company that reported this morning, I just thought I'd provide a couple of
1: quick comments, it was Aristocrat Leisure and it basically showed that the business is uh, running on all, firing on all cylinders. Just the regular part of the business, which we all know is the poker machines, is all doing well in the US and the US economy is doing well. The other new part of the, relatively new part of the business is the social gaming aspect of the business where it's spent, I think it's a couple of billion dollars recently, uh, really making a a big stake in a business that, uh, in an industry which they think is um, many, many, uh, probably tens of billions of dollars, I think was the number that they're chasing I just thought it was interesting just trying to think about the competitive advantage of the existing poker machine businesses versus the online gaming business. And I think my guess is from the bit of research I've done is over the next three or four years you'll see social gaming being quite popular and in a sense it, uh, it I do worry about problem a sense of problem gaming with it. but the reason it essentially uh, I don't know flouts the laws is a bit too strong a word, but the regulators, is because essentially you can only put money in you can't actually put a lot of money out and therefore it's quite in a sense it's different to a poker machine which can just suck a whole lot of money in but you can actually get money out of it as well which in a sense is what keeps you putting a lot more money in uh, and, and the amounts are obviously much larger but just in terms of the competitive advantages of the two businesses I just don't see the social gaming business is as good as the poker machine business where I'm pretty sure they're number one in most of the main markets they've this business has been managed into the ground two or three times and every time it manages to get back up and supply the world with the best gaming machines. Now, I'm not looking at this from an ethical perspective. I just want to contrast the, whether this is the future of this business is going to be as good as the past. And I just think the social gaming aspect is, just, is a very competitive space because you're starting to go up against big companies like Tencent in China, um, the gaming companies in the US, And there's only so much talent um, you can find to develop this software, but it's really all pushing in the same direction at the moment. And I think the businesses are going to do whatever's most profitable in the end. Now, I don't know whether Activision are going to start doing social gaming um, games, but I just think that clearly the fact that Aristocrat have moved so quickly into this space and given how big it is and how much competition it's attracting I just my belief is that this business is not as good as the old poker machine business so when we're being asked to pay um you know over 20 times earnings at the top of a cycle in what has traditionally been a very cyclical business uh, I think you just want to very much keep that in mind
0: mm. Yeah, it's always going to be a lot more scalable isn't it the the social gaming business just being able to sell multiple units of the same product and um, i think it's like but, it's the perfect time for it like it's just,
1: we're in this technology world we've all got ipads we've got our phones mm. but i just don't know whether in 10 or 15 years we're going to be so excited about playing these games on our phones and maybe i've got it wrong but i just feel like it's a bit of a, a fad maybe a bit strong because i think there's more to it than that but i just think the poker machines is a much stronger more reliable business which albeit might be cyclical, it's just where they're number one and you still actually got to make things and have algorithms and um, it's much harder for a competition to come and take their share. So with that, we'll end the podcast. Thank you, Alex. Thank you uh, to everyone that submitted questions. As always, uh, thanks for following us. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. So in, in the interim, please send your questions to game at investmart.com.au and we'll see you in two weeks. Thanks again.
0: To learn more about the income, growth, and small companies' funds, head over to investsmart.com.au. Relevant disclosure documents should be read before making any investment decisions. And if you have any questions you'd like answered by our team, send us an email at skininthegame at